Good morning, Grace. Thank you, Walt and music team for stirring us up, waking us up. Um, My heart is stirred. All glory be to Christ. That's why we're here, to celebrate what Christ has done for us and what he will do in the future. My name is Eric Twisselman. I'm one of the elders here at at Grace La Mirada, and it's it's a a privilege to be here um, bringing God's word. We are in the book of 2 Peter, and we're starting chapter 3, so if you'll turn there in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3, as we continue our series through 1 and 2 Peter, I'm going to ask that we stand as we read God's word together out of reverence for Christ. 2 Peter chapter 3, and our text for today is verses 1 through 7. I'm reading from the ESV. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, The heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction for the ungodly. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we give you praise, we give you thanks that you've given us your word, that you've revealed to us, not just through creation, but through revealed scripture, your will for us, that you've revealed your work in history. We praise you that you hear our praise and that it is beautiful to you because we stand righteous thanks to the shed blood of your son Jesus. Lord, encourage us with this passage. Help us to stand firm in eager expectation of his coming. Lord, uh, help your word to land on our hearts where it needs to, that we might be stirred up and encouraged. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Some of you might recognize the name Sam Harris. Sam Harris uh, is one of the three famous uh, new atheists. Uh, He's been around for for a while now, and um, I remember years ago when uh, Sam Harris was starting to rise to prominence uh, in sort of his desire to spread the good news of atheism, um, I heard him, uh, as chance would have it, on a radio program. He was being interviewed. And he was giving reasons why he believed Christianity was intellectually indefensible. So what evidence did he give? Simply this. 
Simply the fact that Christians literally believe that this guy, Jesus, will physically return someday and come out of the sky to get his people. He couldn't get over this. And mind you, he didn't offer any arguments or evidence against its plausibility. He simply announced it. He simply held up a tenet of Christian theology for ridicule. As one commentator has observed, mocking is one all too typical response to the truth of God's revelation. Mockers do not so much reason against the truth of God as they disdain and belittle it. I titled this sermon, Scoffer's Gonna Scoff, Why We Need to Be Stirred Up. And I have to admit right off the bat that half of this title came from Kenny Clark. I'll let you guess which half. <laughs> you know Kenny. For the last two Sundays, we've been in chapter two of Second Peter, where Peter has been characterizing false teachers and warning God's people against their corrupting influences. And so now in chapter three, Peter pauses briefly to remind us of his purpose for writing this epistle and the previous one, and right before he gets back to the business of reminding us again, uh, warning us against the influence of a particular kind of false teacher that the church can expect to encounter. And uh, this passage, as we've just read it, uh, seems to have three major points, and those are there in your bulletin by way of outline. So why don't we just right off the bat do a quick flyover and identify what these three uh, primary points are, and then we'll walk through uh, and and hopefully see uh, things uh, a little more closely in context and, and have some application So first of all, uh, what is Peter's purpose? Well, he states his purpose for writing this epistle and the previous one, and his purpose is to stir up and remind the church of what has been declared in Scripture. It's to stir us up and remind us what has been communicated in God's word. And second, why? Well, there's a problem because of scoffers. Because scoffers will come with, wait for it, scoffing. That's what they bring. And they're scoffing at the idea that Christ will come back in glory as promised. But third, Peter gives us the prognosis. What's the outlook? And the outlook is judgment is coming. Judgment is coming and the destruction of the ungodly is coming. And we ought to remember that. So that's the purpose, the problem, and the prognosis. Let's, let's, let's walk through this passage then and see how we ought to be stirred up by Peter. Uh, this is the second time that Peter has used this word, stirred up. Uh, he said it back in chapter one, verse 13. And uh, this, this word for stirring up actually means to rouse, uh, per- perhaps with a connotation of shaking violently, to, to uh, awaken. We just sang of being awoken, rising from the dead. What a great uh, song to prepare our hearts for this message. Um, 
And he wants to stir up, by way of reminder, our sincere hearts. And this word for sincere can be translated various ways. One rendering, possibly a better one, um, is pure thinking. It literally means to be viewed in sunlight, okay? Uh, Like a potter would hold up a, a, a vessel of pottery and see uh, and look for holes of you know, light shining through. And as so as one commentator puts it, he says, here Peter describes a sincere mind as a mind characterized by moral and ethical purity, unsullied by vices and heresies, which is uncontaminated and unmixed by the seductive influences of the world, the flesh, and the devil. What a stark contrast this is to the blots and blemishes of the false teachers in the previous chapter in verse 13. And so the way we maintain this purity of thought and practice, Peter says, is to remember, to remember. Now, if you remember nothing else from this sermon, here's your takeaway. Remember, remember to remember. Remember what the holy prophets predicted. Remember the commandment of our Lord and Savior as his own apostles have faithfully transmitted it to us, having been eyewitnesses of it, as Peter mentions in chapter one. So what are these things that we are to remember? Well, talks about the holy prophets, the predictions of the holy prophets, and let's remember that the whole point of the Old Testament and the prophecies of the Old Testament was to point people to the Messiah so that we and everyone on earth would trust him and him alone for salvation because Christ himself is the point of all prophecy and he is the focal point of all human history. What then is the commandment of the Lord and Savior, it's singular, it's, it's one commandment. So, so you might be searching, well, where is it? What is it exactly? Um, one commentator, Douglas Moo, uh, kind of in, tries to put all of Peter together and encapsulates the, the general command in this way. He says, the commandment of the Lord and Savior is the basic demand that believers conform to the image of Christ becoming holy as the God who called them is holy, and that Peter's audience will not fall prey to the false teaching by neglecting the life of holiness. So, those are the things that we need to be reminded of. Those are the things we need to be stirred up and roused in. Why? Because there's a problem. We have scoffers. There will come scoffers who scoff. So who are these scoffers? And what do they scoff at? And why? Why are they scoffing? Um, Are these the false teachers that Peter was talking about in chapter two? Or are they a new group maybe coming from outside the church? Well, possibly a little bit of both. Notice that in verse three, these uh, scoffers are characterized as following their own sinful desires or we might translate that the unrestrained sensual passions of the flesh. And this is the same word that's used to describe the false teachers back in chapter two in verses 10 and 18. But by the same token, it might be possible that uh, 
Peter is also referring to those outside the church as he mentioned in 1 Peter 4, 14, that we can expect that we will be blessed when we are insulted for the name of Christ, for the sake of Christ. So it might be those outside the church who uh, hurl insults at us. Either way, whether these voices are coming from within the church as a, as a creeping influence of false doctrine or from outside the church, Peter's point is clear. We need to be aware and resist their toxic influence. Randy pointed out in his uh, sermon on chapter one, verses three and four, that false teachers always try to do three things. They always seek to undermine the knowledge, the power, and the promises of Christ. And these scoffers are no different because Christ promised that he would return. And he even proved that this is a trustworthy thing to be believed and hoped for through his own resurrection. Peter's first epistle is suffused with references to Christ's glorious return. And so now he warns that scoffers will come and possibly undermine the believer's hopes and confidence in that promise, asking, where is the promise of his coming? Where is this promised coming? So why do they raise this question? Why, why do they, they, they scoff the way they do? Why do they mock, as Jude translates the same word? Well, What's interesting, I think, is that in this passage, there are actually two explanations given. One is the explanation of the scoffers themselves, but Peter has another explanation as to why they scoff. So let's look carefully at both. First, uh, verse four, we have the scoffers' explanation for why they scoff. They say, ever since the fathers fell asleep, that is the, perhaps the Old Testament prophets, Uh, the patriarchs, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, since ancient times, when the Old Testament prophets spoke of the day of the Lord and all of that stuff, and the apostles have been teaching about the, the return of Christ, things have always stayed the same. They're appealing to the pattern of history as the basis of their skepticism. Now, let me just pause. This might resonate with a lot of people today. This might resonate with the skepticism of today. Maybe skeptics who doubt the supernatural on the basis of the historical success of science, for example, uh, or, or the apparent uniformity of nature and the predictive power of that, or the apparently cyclical view of history. But here's what's interesting is that Peter's explanation is a little different. According to Peter, the scoffers are not dispassionate observers of history. They are not objective observers of history for two reasons. First, note in verse five, which says that they deliberately overlook at least two facts of redemptive history history history. 
that the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. So creation. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. A clear reference to Noah. In other words, they appeal to history, but they forget some important facts of history, namely what it says in Genesis 1, that it was God who created the heavens and the earth to begin with, and that in the past, God has judged the earth. Clear reference to Genesis 1. Now, some of you might be scratching your heads over, well, did, did, is that scientifically accurate? Did God actually make the world out of water and, and, and all of that? And let me just say this. Um, Peter is writing this not in order to give us a detailed scientific account. He is using the mosaic language that comes right out of Genesis. And he's using this language to simply remind us of the factness of God's creative work and God's work in judgment. Why? Because that has predictive power. That has predictive power. But before we move on, I want, I want to point something out and camp out on, a, on an interesting phrase that caught my attention. This phrase, deliberately overlook. I want you to think about that for a moment. That sounds almost oxymoronic, doesn't it? How do you deliberately overlook something? For example, if I said, I want you all to deliberately overlook the color of my shirt right now. Boop! Oh, no, sorry, okay. You, can, you, you, you couldn't help it, right? If I say, don't think of a pink elephant, too late, okay? So it doesn't seem like it's something that, that, that can be done, but actually, if we really reflect on the kinds of creatures we are, we discover we're very adept at doing this when it suits us. Um, when we have something that is in our field of vision and we know it's there, we sometimes do not allow ourselves to attend to it. We may shift away from it, we ignore it, we redirect our focus to something else. Examples, well, we cruise by a warning sign that says, keep out, not paying it any heed. Or perhaps, no more than 15 items. you feel rebuked, sorry, you know who you are. Okay. Or, as, or as one uh, dear brother shared with me after first service, compact. <laughs> Parking lot. Uh, as a high school teacher, I am very familiar with the capacity to deliberately overlook things, sometimes for good, sometimes for ill. I often have to deliberately overlook childish, immature behavior for the sake of the lesson and for, and for the sake of plowing forward. I am the champion cell phone confiscator at my high school, <laughs> um, really. Uh, and uh, yeah, last couple of weeks, I, I had back-to-back hat tricks, uh, <laughs> three in one day. Um, and. You know, we have a school-wide policy regarding cell phones, school-wide. From the time they're freshmen, they enter school, they know what the school-wide policy is. It's in every instructor's syllabus, and we go over it the first week of class. 
If you have your cell phone out in class, it can be confiscated, turned over to the dean, and your parent will probably have to pick it up after school. But invariably, when I swoop and grab that cell phone, what's the response? You didn't warn me. You didn't give me a warning. You were in class on that day when I went over this. <laughs> I have the roster right here. You, you deliberately failed to attend to that. One of my own children, in a, in a refreshing burst of personal honesty, confessed this week. She said, we were talking about these things, and, and, and she said, Dad, sometimes it's like I try to forget what mom told me to do. (laughs) Wow. Praise the Lord (laughs) for that, right? For that clarity of, of, you know, that self-awareness. I want that kind of self-awareness and honesty with myself, right? So back to the scoffers then. I mean, hopefully we're seeing a little of ourselves here. Um, But back to the scoffers, Isn't it clear then why scoffers deliberately overlook the facts of God's redemptive history? Go back to verse three. It says that they come scoffing following their own sinful desires. That is, like all of us have the tendency to do, they practice a willful kind of self-deception in order to pursue the desires of the flesh. Now, often we tell the story a different direction. We say, well, people have skeptical doubts about the Bible, and therefore they then uh, don't live according to its word. Uh, But Peter seems to be suggesting it goes the other way. Sensuality doesn't grow out of skepticism. Rather, skepticism grows out of sensuality because we believe what we want to believe. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter one, verses 19 and following, that we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We look at creation, we know that there's a God. What has been revealed about God is plainly known from what has been made, as, as, as we just recited from Psalm 19. But we have a tendency to suppress the truth about God in unrighteousness. Why? Because we love our sin. We're susceptible to this temptation to find short-term sin more attractive than the long-term promises of God. And that's why we need to be stirred up constantly so that we don't settle into that. And further, Peter is teaching us that anyone who does scoff against God's future promises, is going to have to willfully ignore God's past faithfulness. If we're going to scoff at God's future promises, we have to willfully ignore his past faithfulness. Because as he brings it home there, if God could make the world through his word, then he can unmake it through the same word. And if God could judge the world with a great deluge of water, he can certainly destroy it with a great deluge of fire. Uh, I found a a, a kind of a humorous humorous illustration of this kind of selective attention to detail uh, regarding God's work um, as I was uh, reading this article from the Babylon Bee. 
Now, some of you know what the Babylon Bee is. L- let me just preface this by saying this is not an actual news item, okay? This is something like uh, the, the Christian answer to the onion, which is satire. I love satire because I love irony. I know not everybody likes irony uh, and satire. Uh, my mother is a dear, she's, it's because she's kind, I think. Uh, she doesn't like <laughs> satire and irony. Um, she's a, what is it, a good person. <laughs> um, but, but, but this headline uh, grabbed my attention, uh, as I thought, very illustrative of what Peter's talking about here. Uh, what has God ever done for me, asks man breathing air. Uh, and uh, it, it goes on. The, the, the article actually develops. Uh, Linwood, Washington. Sources confirmed Tuesday that local free thinker Jared Olson called into question the absurd idea that God had ever done anything for him, all the while inhaling oxygen and exhaling carbon dioxide in a complex process well beyond his mind's capability of understanding its entirety. The idea of God is really just holding us back, Olson opined, addressing the other members of the philosophy club at Edmonds Community College as the membrane across his larynx vibrated to modulate the flow of air from his lungs, making his speech audible to the people listening while whose intricate ear structures then instantaneously transform the invisible sound waves into abstract thought in their brain's nervous tissue. And it goes on, okay? Now, what's the point? Is the point to to score a cheap shot against atheists and skeptics? No, no, although it might be, okay? It might be, but but, but I think we, we would miss something if we didn't recognize that often when, when we express, even if it's not out loud, maybe we have doubts, and we struggle with doubts, don't we? I do, okay? Sometimes I wonder to myself, where is God in this? Maybe it's not a generalized atheistic uh, question or pronouncement, but where is God in this? And I ask that question in the privacy of my own heart. What Peter is telling us is, if you're asking those questions and if you're appealing to history as the basis for those doubts, you're actually standing on the very evidence and you're ignoring it. You're overlooking it. Don't deliberately overlook it. Be reminded. You need to be stirred up. And that's the point that I'm trying to make here is that we need to stir one another up constantly because we could easily slide into a total pattern, couldn't we? We could let those few nagging doubts become bigger doubts. And we don't want to slide into that mentality. We don't want to slide into sensuality. Indeed, I think our lives would be meaningless if there isn't a God of history. If God isn't our creator and our sustainer, how can we say that there's meaning to the universe? How can our lives have purpose and direction unless there is a point towards which history is developing? You know, it's very fashionable these days to speak of being on the right side of history. Have you heard that phrase kind of mannered about? Being on the right side of history. Usually it's used in political discussions and all of that. Oh, we're gonna be on the right side of history. And like so many fashionable statements, it has both a kernel of truth and a kernel of error. The only way that history could have an objective, ethical, right side to it 
is if history has a moral author, director, and ultimately a moral judge. And the judge will judge someday. He's proven it in the past. He has the power, he has the will, and he can do it in the future. And that brings us to point three, the prognosis. Judgment is coming, and destruction is coming against the ungodly. On the one hand, um, we, we might be tempted to think, ah, good, get them. I'm not gonna steal any thunder, but you just need to read into the next few verses for next week's sermon, because Peter explains why. But let's just get a taste of it there in verse seven. By the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. You've got the hint there, they're being stored up and kept for judgment. In other words, this judgment is right now at bay. Praise the Lord. This judgment is being withheld, though we might deserve it. We don't have uh, time to look at this passage, unfortunately, but um, a passage that uh, uh, came, came to light uh, parallel to this passage is Matthew 24, uh, verses 35 to the end of the chapter, so maybe jot that down. Matthew 24, verses 35 to the, to the end there. Um, I would encourage you to read it maybe on your own, uh, maybe in personal devotions or uh, maybe as part of your grace group discussion. Um, I think you'll see some important parallels between that passage and what Peter is saying here, what he's trying to remind people of, because it's Christ's original predictions regarding his own return, as well as the commands to his followers to stay awake and to keep watch, lest they fall into wicked debauchery and then be caught off guard and unawares at Christ's return and thereby face condemnation and judgment. We have to be reminded of these things. We have to be stirred up in these things because what we believe about the future determines how we live today. A person's belief about the future dictates how they live in the, in the moment. And, and I have to think about that. I have to own that for a moment. When people look at my life and the kinds of things that I do and engage myself in, what would people conclude about my future hope? What would people conclude about what I believe about the future and what I wish for? So by way of application, what are, our, what are our takeaways? Where does this leave us? Uh, this is kind of, a, kind of a downer way to end a uh, sermon. Broke it off right there at verse seven, really? Uh, with judgment? Well, I, I encourage you to come back next week and to continue to be stirred up, okay? Right, okay? Uh, but, I, but I think the obvious uh, response at this point is if you're up here and not a believer the day for salvation is today believe the gospel believe the good news about Jesus Christ believe the testimony of the scriptures 
If, if you're here this morning and, and, and you're, uh, you have doubts about Christianity, you're not sure. Maybe you're not an outward scoffer, right? Uh, people who are, you know, outward scoffers rarely come to church. But sometimes they do. I, I actually talked to one after, after a sermon last year. I was glad he came. Um, maybe though you're in the privacy of your heart, you're, you're, you kind of scoff. You don't have a problem with Christianity per se. You're not trying to undermine anybody else's faith. That's fine. Christians want to believe this. It, it, it's therapeutic for them maybe, is, maybe is, is your thought. But inwardly, privately, you kind of say to yourself, it's kind of crazy. Okay, that might be you. Um, and, and if that's you, I want to appeal to you to look closer. Look at the evidence for Christianity. Don't deliberately overlook the evidence that is in God's word that faithful theologians and teachers have believed and expounded on for 2,000 years and stood firm in. You see, we Christians literally believe. We literally believe in a physical resurrection of Christ that he actually rose from the dead. And that because of that, we can trust in his promised physical, literal return someday to make all things right. And why did he do that? Why did he have to come and die? Because we would have been eternally separated from our maker because of our sin. But he died on the cross to take away our sins and restore the fellowship that was broken with our maker. And we believe this because as Peter reminds us, his very first disciples, Christ's earliest followers who knew him personally, they did not follow cleverly devised myths, as he says in chapter one, but they were eyewitnesses to his glory. And so if you have doubts, I wanna talk to you. I, I really do. I want you to come, come see me at, at, at the end of service or something like that or, 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 or maybe another elder or grace group shepherd or, or, or anybody. Um, ask your questions. If you have honest, seeking doubts, I want to I hear them. I want to I speak to you and encourage you. Christians, brothers and sisters, lest we adopt a kind of smug us versus them kind of uh, mentality that uh, reading too much Babylon B might, might do. Um, consider that this passage is mainly directed at us, not the scoffers. Don't forget that it's, we need to be stirred up. We need the gospel just as much today as we needed it the day we believed. A dear brother uh, in this church posted something on Facebook this last week, and uh, I haven't asked permission to read this, but after all, it was on Facebook, so it's out there. Um, he, he <laughs> this is a great word, and I think it, I think it glorifies God. Um, this is one of our missionaries who's back on furlough, and he writes this. Number one, whether in Asia or America, I often forget that the people around me need Jesus. This is a problem. Number two, whether in Asia or America, I often forget that I need Jesus, and that's a bigger problem. Because if we don't get the gospel right in our own hearts, if we don't see our daily need for the gospel, how then will we present it as attractive to anyone else if we come across as arrogant or having it all together? 
Uh, After first service, Walt shared with me a a little anecdote, a story about uh, an encounter he had with somebody and uh, asked, asked this person something about, oh, well, what's, you know, have you, have you, what, what are you learning in God's word? And the answer was, well, I've read the Bible. I, I, okay, done. <laughs> done deal. Uh, no felt need to keep returning to it and being nourished by it. Brothers and sisters, we, we must be nourished on the word. We need to be stirred up because in our sin, we have a tendency to assume room temperature. Room temperature meaning of the culture around us. We can't settle for the sinful passions that beset us. And we have to continually stir one another up by meeting together as we do in worship, in fellowship, grace groups, Lord's Supper, so that we can stand fast in the true grace of God. We need to encourage one another with these words as Paul writes in the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter four, verses 16 through 18, he writes, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. We need to encourage one another. So I want to leave us with with three questions, and these could be questions for for personal uh, meditation and prayer, or maybe discussion in a grace group uh, or small group. Um, but I hope the Lord will use these questions uh, in light of his word. Uh, and then I'll give you two suggestions for stirring, for further stirring. First, three questions. Number one, what promises of God or parts of scripture are you tempted to doubt? What promises of God or parts of scripture are you tempted to doubt? Are there parts of the Bible that you read them and you kind of, yep, uh-huh. But deep in your heart of hearts, if you're honest with yourself and honest before God, you'd say, I'm, I'm, having, I'm, I'm struggling with this one. I'm struggling with, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Because we go through those seasons, don't we? Where God seems far off. So where are those places? Where are you tempted to doubt, to question the promises of God. And talk to the Lord about those things. He already knows. Number two, are you judging God's word by your personal history thus far? That's the first part of the question. Are you judging God's word by your personal history thus far or are you judging your personal history thus far by God's word? Are you judging God's word by your personal history thus far or are you judging your personal history thus far by God's word? Scoffers do the former. Saints do the latter. Scoffers are those who have come to the point where they look at their own personal history, they look at experience, they look at what's been going on, and they say, that's it. I, what? I can't believe this. God, God must be, he couldn't have meant what he said. 
And we make God out to be a liar. Do we find ourselves doing that? Or are we looking at the history of our lives with all of its bumps and blemishes and hardships and asking God, what does your word say about this? How do I interpret this? And maybe the only interpretation is, this sucks. And God, you know it. I have a suggestion for that here in a moment. Third question, where are you putting your ultimate hope? Where are you putting your ultimate hope? Are there voices that you hear uh, in your mind that tempt you to think, he's not really coming back, at least not anytime soon? You've got time. Why don't you just build your little kingdom on earth here? It'll be a while. There might be the temptation to, uh, to listen to the, the scoffers, the, the literal scoffers that are maybe in your life. Maybe you know some literal, literal people who, who make fun of you for your Christian beliefs. It's hard to avoid the scoffing uh, if you're out on, on uh, you know, social media or just culture in general. Sometimes it might just be the sound of our idols clamoring for our attention and our time. The next big project, the next grade report that I'm staking my future on, the next big career move or life stage, the next doctor's visit, the next court case, the next big game, the next episode in the series, or maybe even the next major political event, whatever that might be. <laughs> What's he talking about? I don't know. <laughs> we, we can so easily have a, a, a myopic view, a just a right in front of us, life is in our face view, and when we fail to put our hope in what is truly hopeful and truly eternal, well, that can cause us to slide into sensuality. So those are the three questions, and I just want to leave you with two suggestions then for stirring, and they're really just two passages of Scripture. Number one, go to the Psalms. Remember I said remember. If you go through the Psalms, notice how often the psalmist says, I will remember. The Psalms lament the hardships of life the struggles of life, the scoffers, the enemies, whatever it is. But the psalmists always come back to, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. I might suggest Psalm 42. That's a psalm that's, that's uh, been in my heart uh, of late. Uh, famous beginning, many of us can quote it, as the deer pants for streams of water. So my soul longs for God. But it goes on and it talks about those who say, where is your God and it talks about the mockers and how do, I, how do I steel myself against that? I can't do it myself. I have to turn and take refuge in God. So maybe look at Psalm 42, meditate on it, pray through it, make it your prayer. And the second passage I would suggest, appropriately enough, would be 1 Peter. Here we are. He's saying, let me remind you of what I wrote in my previous epistle and what I've re- written so far. Go back. How easily the dust can settle on our memories and we, and we forget 
And I've, I've so enjoyed this preaching series, this study, but I found as I was preparing for this sermon, oh man, I gotta go back and read First Peter again. Wow, I forgot about that. So maybe read through First Peter again and, and all the way up to, to, to right here and be ready for the week, ready with what it says. Arm yourself with it and stir one another up. Let me close in prayer as Walt comes to lead us in a closing song and thought. Father, we praise you that you are trustworthy. We praise you that you are the God of history. You are the initiator of history, the sustainer of history, and the final judge of history. And because of your faithfulness in the past, as demonstrated in the life of Christ, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ, we can take hope in the promise of his return. I pray that we would be able to rest in that assurance, that we would rest in your arms and in your peace. Help us to continually stir one another up by way of reminder. In Christ's name, amen.